Well, for the past three weeks, we've been talking about this idea of comfort. And uh, like much of uh, the things we can experience in this life, we said, hey, this is a neutral thing that's neither bad or good in and of itself, but it's more how we use it or, or in what ways it, it uh, plays out in our lives. You know, we, we pursue and work hard to establish our own comfort, right? But I think it, there's all kinds of examples we can bring up in way, ways that we want to be comfortable. We seek to minimize conflict and discomfort and pain. If there's something that's going to be difficult, uh, sometimes we're like, you know what, I'm just going to avoid that all together. I, I want to make sure that I'm going to be comfortable. You get invited over to a friend's house and you think, well, that so-and-so is going to be there and, and we have some uh, unresolved conflict. And so I'm just going to stay home because that'll be more comfortable than you know, possibly running into that person and having to hash out that conflict. There's all kinds of different things that we can face. And in some part, it's not a terrible idea, right? It's not a terrible idea to think, hey, I, I want to eliminate the discomfort and pain from my life. Because sometimes it plays itself out in a very positive way. You think about where you sleep every day. In some way, I imagine you've tried to establish a comfy place to lay your head. Whether it's the condition of the mattress, the temperature of the room, the amount of light that comes in. We all have different quirks and whatnot. Maybe you're the person who has to have some kind of sound uh, going on. So you have a noise machine or you have a fan going, even the dead of winter, because you just want the, the white noise of the fan. Or maybe you need dead silence and blackout curtains. But it, I imagine in some way, we've all sought some comfort at night. And I think it makes sense, right? Because the better night's sleep we can get, the more rested we are, the more rejuvenated we are, the more energized we are to take on the day ahead. And so again, it makes sense that we would try to minimize conflict, pain, and discomfort. But I think a lot of times we allow things like avoidance and ignorance to play into this way that we deal with discomfort, pain, and conflict. Where we just say, you know what, I'm just going to... Uh, Sweep as much under the rug as I can. I'm just going to hope that it goes away. We've looked at a couple different topics. We looked at comfort in, in our relationships, uh, comfort in our finances, and the way we view money. And again, sometimes you just think, you know, if I just don't talk to that person that I'm in conflict with, uh, man, the problem solved, right? Well, we'll just avoid each other for the next three years. And, and, and you know, that one time a year that the family gets together and they're going to be there as well, I'll just make sure I'm sitting at the other side of the table. But whenever we have those plans, it always seems to be those are the moments that you get sat right next to that person, whether you want to or not. We try to just uh, avoid it and just uh, set those problems aside. If you have financial issues, maybe you say, you know what, I'm just going to live off of this credit card because man, I can get whatever I want off this credit card. And for a season, that may avoid some discomfort. But it just builds, and, and, and you see one that comes, uh, a greater issue, greater pain that will, will follow that season. Or you just run from previous bad decisions that you've made, thinking, okay, well, if I burn these bridges here financially or, or relationally, I, I just got to pick up a move and go somewhere else. And you're always moving to new places every couple years because you're avoiding pain and discomfort. We've seen that each week that there is a comfort to be found in God. And, and no surprise here that, that that is where we call us to find our ultimate comfort is this, this comfort that comes through knowing in trusting in Jesus, that comes through an obedience and a submission to him. See, following Jesus often leads us through the discomfort. 
leads us through the pain, leads us through the difficulty in life. And I think sometimes that's hard to grasp, hard to get our heads around. But then we look at the life of Jesus and we saw that when discomfort, pain, and conflict faced him, he went through it. He was willing to endure the pain of a cross. He was willing to go to the point of giving up his life and experiencing death so that we could have forgiveness, that we trust in him as a sacrifice for our mistakes, for our sins. He takes on the price, he takes on that unrighteousness and we take on his righteousness because he pays the price. A substitution uh, for, a, a substitutionary atonement is what it's called. He took our place and atoned for our sins, his death on the cross. And he did that because he was willing to go through that pain, through that conflict that comes through sin, through our sin. And so when we follow him, it's no surprise that he leads us through comfort, I'm sorry, through conflict, pain, and difficulty. We see that following Jesus, he continues to work in us and through us. And so if you see that picture, the fact that when we follow Jesus, there's discomfort and pain that we're led through, some hope we can begin to see and paint this picture is that as we do that, that God's going to not only work in us, but he's going to work through us as well in the lives of others. Well, today we're going to conclude this series with two different stories. And both of these stories have comfort and conflict. And you're going to see two different people from a place of extreme comfort have to make a decision. Are they going to stay in this place of comfort? Or are they willing to sacrifice that for a greater purpose, for a greater responsibility, for a greater call on their lives? And I think the reason that we're looking at this is because we face decisions like this on a daily basis, where we have opportunities to follow in step with where God is leading us, to be on mission for him, to make much of his name, to share the hope that we have with Jesus with others. But I think to do that brings discomfort. And on a regular basis, if you're a follower of Christ, we come to this point of, am I going to stay comfortable or am I going to follow what God would have for me? Because he has something great. He has something amazing. One of these stories is where a king is going to elevate his own comfort over his responsibilities to others. And the other one, we're actually going to see a story of a queen where she elevates the needs of others over her own comfort. So we'll see both an example of, hey, here's what we shouldn't do, and here's the why as we see his story unfold. And then we're going to see another example of, here's what we should do as we see the queen's story unfold. My hope for all of us here is that we would demote our quest for comfort in our lives. I was trying to find the right word to put in there because I don't think God's call in our life is that we would rid our lives of comfort. I don't think the solution is that we would go, I'll live in a monastery, we would whip ourselves and experience pain to try to become more disciplined in following Christ. I think, but... In America specifically, I think in our culture, in our day, we've so elevated comfort and this quest of comfort above other things, I would call us to demote that quest. To say there's other things that are greater, there's other things that are more important than that pursuit of comfort. And that's my hope for us this morning, is that not only would we demote the quest for comfort, but that we would elevate the quest for the Lord. That we would elevate the searching out to, to know who God is in our lives and what does it look like to follow him for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, my hope is that you would see the goodness and the blessing that is in Jesus despite how he brings us through pain and comfort. In light of that fact, that there's still joy, there's still peace, 
It's not a life free from conflict or pain or difficulty, but it's one that's full of a hope for eternity. It's a life that, where there's peace amidst pain, where there's joy in seasons of difficulty, and there's a significance, a true significance in our daily lives. Our first story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's what will be for story number one. Uh, if you want to turn on your Bibles, that's fine as well. Any way to get God's Word in front of you, it'll also be on the screen uh, for that same express purpose. And this is a story of King David. You might be familiar with his story, or this may be the first time you're hearing about him. Uh, but you have the Israelites, the people of God, uh, who have been wandering through the desert, and God leads them to a promised land. And they're expecting just an, a wide open place to go and, and build this city and their own nations. And they find out, okay, well, no, it's, it's, it's inhabited. And so God leads his people uh, on these different battles to basically take over the promised land that, that is now theirs. And so uh, that's been going on, and, and they begin to kind of settle into the land. They don't yet have a temple built for their God. There's still there's some tense, there's some nomadic aspect to their daily lives. At this point is where we're going to read about the story of David. Uh, you have this point where they're looking around at all these other nations and they're saying something's different. Something's different about us and all these other nations that we've either uh, pushed out or, or, or conquered and overcome completely. And the difference is they all have kings. And we don't. We don't have a king. And so they cry out for a king and God finally says, fine, here's your king. And he gives them Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And while Saul may have started strong at times, he quickly fell. And quickly started to go in a direction apart from God. And once Saul and then his son Jonathan, who, who never was actually king but would have been heir to the throne, once they passed, uh, David actually came to be the second king of the people of God. And, and David, if you hear the story of David and Goliath, this is the same David. I know sometimes there's similar names in the Bible. You think, oh, is that the same one as this one? And in this case, yes, it is. This is the David who, who, who slayed Goliath. Um, and now he is king of Israel, and his heart is for the Lord. He is passionate about following God and leading others in that as well. But he's also king now, so let's remember, he's got some comfort. He, he, he's top dog. He's got probably the nicest place and the most comforts available to him. So here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we begin in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Well, one responsibility of a king is protection of his people, right? Making sure that his, his uh, people, his nation, their interests are protected. And in that day and age, uh, a strong military would, would have really done that. And so there, there are seasons where, where it's common for kings to go out to battle and either to show their, their power and their strength so that no others would oppose them or where there was opposition to go and, and bring peace to that through conquering those people. But there's a season where kings would go off to war. But what's the end of verse 1 say? But David remained in Jerusalem. At a time where kings are doing this, David's at home binging the latest Netflix shows. He's just hanging out. And you may say, well, isn't that a good thing? Because war is not a good thing, right? And so if David's at home, isn't that a good thing then? He's not off to war, but what does he do? He sends Joab, he sends his leaders, he sends everyone else off in his place. He basically phones it in. He calls in sick. 
He takes a personal day. He says, I, I, I just can't king today. You guys go and take care of it for me. I'm hanging back. So he was supposed to be somewhere else. His responsibilities called him somewhere else, and yet he's at home hanging out on the couch. Those familiar with the story knows that uh, he, ch- he chooses and continues to choose this comfort despite opportunities to, to make things right. 2 Samuel 1, uh, chapter 11, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon. So he, he's sitting at home, everyone's off to war, and all of a sudden this happens. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So David calls in sick, he's, you know, plays a few days, uh, spends a few days trying to mold the perfect butt imprint on the couch. I think you know what I mean. You just you get things just right, you know, and then you get up to go grab something from the kitchen. You come back, and one of your kids took your spot. And it's like, no, no, that's my spot. I, I've put some serious work into just molding things just right for my own comfort. And so David's been doing that, and all of a sudden he's got to get up either for a bathroom break or grab something from the kitchen. I don't know, but he takes the long scenic route. And he's walking on the roof, and all of a sudden he's looking out. And you got to wonder, do he know that, hey, there might be something that you know, that he could see, and it doesn't say that either way, but for whatever did happen, we do see he finds himself on the roof with a lady bathing in sight. And so what does David do? Well, at this point, he could just say, you know what, I shouldn't even be here, I should be, I should be somewhere else, you know what, and get off the roof and, and, and go and start to uh, do what he should be doing and take responsibility. But instead he says, to his servants, hey, um, I was on the roof today and uh, saw this one lady, uh, you know, fourth house over from the, 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 the tower. Yeah, can you go see who she is? Go find out about her. And so they send servants to find out from her, find out who she is, and they come back and they say that this is Bathsheba, wife of Uri the Hittite. And that, again, that should have stopped him right there. He gets this, okay, this is wife of another man. And yet he says, send her to me. So David has her come to the, to the, to the palace, to, to, to him, and uh, basically lays with her and sends her home. He continues in, in this uh, seeking his own comfort over holiness. Instead of choosing to follow honoring God, he continues to seek his own comfort in his sin. And if this were a modern-day story, I think a few days after David does all this, uh, he would get a text from Bathsheba with just four powerful words. We need to talk. And David would probably reply with one of those, you know, smiley face emojis, the, the surprised look, the, the eyes wide open and the straight face kind of thing going on, like, what, what's going on here? You know, I thought, I thought we were all good, you know, uh, we just had some fun, had some comfort, and now we're done. Well, finds it turns out that Bathsheba's pregnant. She's with child. And so again, here's an opportunity for David to come clean. But again, he cho- chooses his own relational comfort. He's the king, right? He shouldn't have to deal with this kind of stuff. He should have a way that he can cover all this up and make it all go away. And that's exactly what he does. He calls Uriah home from battle, Bathsheba's husband, thinking that, okay, well, if he has a reason to come home, then when he goes back to battle, then comes back again and finds all of a sudden there's a child in the picture, he'll realize, oh, that one night that I got to come home on leave, I, that must have been where, where this child came from. But Uriah was a better man than David in this moment. 
And even though David sent him off, brought him from the, the front lines and said, hey, go, go spend some time with your wife, he wouldn't even leave the front gates of, of where David was. And he stayed with the other servants. He said, how can I go home and, and have the comforts of home when my, my fellow Israelites are off at battle? And so David thinks, okay, well, I need to, to grease the wheels of comfort. And so the, the second night, he gets Uriah drunk. And a drunk Uriah in this moment makes a better choice than a sober David. Because a drunk Uriah still does not go home. And David just sees, man, that this is a man of character, a man of integrity. And again, we get so caught up in our pursuit of comfort sometimes, especially when we start to, to take the step into the world of sin, that we just kind of feel we're on this path and we never stop to say, hey, maybe there's a different way. And David doesn't stop, even though he sees the kind of man that Uriah is that doesn't trigger anything for him. And he just thinks, okay, I, I need to get rid of this guy. And so he jots down a little note, folds it, seals it, gives it to Uriah, and says, take this back to the front lines and hand it to Joab. And so he gives that note to Joab, and Joab opens it up, and it basically says, here's the deal. The man who just gave you this note, Uriah, put him where the fighting is the most difficult, and when it gets that just intense point, withdraw from him, abandon him, and let him die. And that's exactly what happens. And word gets back to King David that Uriah's been killed in battle, and after a brief time of mourning and grieving, he then says, all right, Bathsheba, now you can come and live with me. He thinks, okay, I got my tracks covered. I'm all good. We're good to go. But there's consequences for his sin. His quest for comfort led him down a path of sin where he did all kinds of things that were seen as evil in the eyes of the Lord. The end of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel 11 it says, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. That's the Christian Standard Bible version. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. The ESV says it displeased the Lord. His pursuit of comfort led him down a path of sin that God saw as evil. If you know how the story ends, the prophet Nathan comes in the picture and he basically reveals David's sin. Even though David had covered all his bases, he can't hide that from God. And so the prophet Nathan, on behalf of God, reveals the sin. The, the child they had together ends up dying and it's all kinds of uh, things that happen as a result of that. Now the beautiful part, for those who know God, is that yes, he's a God of redemption. He's a God of forgiveness. And we see that, that, that David is restored and God... Uh, um, excuse me, still has a plan for David and his life and his lineage. But you see how a quest for comfort led him to a place of sin that just was a slippery slope where next thing you know, he, he probably didn't even know who he, who he was when he stopped and realized the weight of his sin. That's story number one. Story number two, I think, is a much greater story. Instead of someone shirking away from their responsibilities, it's a story of someone stepping up we're looking in the book of Esther, chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. Esther, chapter 4, you can open up there if you want. It'll be on the screen as well. And uh, the story of Esther comes much later after David. Uh, this comes after, basically, uh, the kings of Israel. Then Israel has a civil war, and then the, the two factions that, that result, uh, the, north and the, southern, the northern and southern kingdoms, after all their kings come and go. Uh, the other nations come in and basically conquer uh, what's left of, of Israel and the Jews. Basically, the, the, one of the, the southern group is called Judah, and that's where you get the term Jew from. Um, <coughs> they're exiled, and then they, they come back. All these different uh, battles that take place 
And so this is about 100 years after the Babylonian exile. So that the people of God have been spread all throughout that region, right? Some have had a chance to come back to Jerusalem and start to kind of get a nation restored. They're still under the control of others, uh, but they're, and they're still uh, exiled and, and scattered throughout. And uh, the story of Esther takes place in Susa. Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire. And it's where the king of Persia lived, and he's one of four main characters that we see in the story of Esther. First one is king, king of Persia, and uh, he likes to drink and he likes to make snap decisions, which are two great features to have in a leader. Um, if you didn't catch the, the sarcasm, there was all kinds that was coming out there because and this guy just makes all kinds of bungling moves. He likes to drink and he makes snap decisions. Then we have a guy by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai was a Jew, uh, and it would have been an Israelite, then you know, Jew from the land of Judah. Um, and he found favor with the king because he overheard some people plotting to kill the king. And so he told the king about this. And obviously, if someone says, hey, here's some people who are trying to kill you, that person's now kind of in your favor. Thanks, I owe you one, I owe you a solid. So that's Mordecai. And Mordecai had a niece, and his niece was Esther. And so in one of uh, the, the, the king's crazy moments of, of drunkenness and snap decisions, all of a sudden he finds himself in need of a new wife. And so he holds a beauty pageant, and, and Esther's in the beauty pageant, and, and conceals the fact that she's Jewish, and she wins the beauty pageant. And so Mordecai takes her, uh, I'm sorry, not Mordecai, um, the king of Persia takes her as his own, and, and basically makes her queen. And so she goes from just another girl in the crowd to being queen of Persia. And the fourth player in our story is Haman. Haman was basically, he held the highest position aside from king in all of Persia. And, and again, the king made snap decisions, and he liked to drink, and so Man kind of greased the wheels of productivity and got things set up so that the king would decree that anytime someone saw Haman, they would have to kneel and show him honor and glory. And so that's kind of what's taking place here in the book of Esther. And where the conflict really begins to unfold is where Mordecai finds himself before Haman. And of course, the, the law is they're supposed to kneel before Haman, and Mordecai is like, I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. And that did not go over well with Haman. And so Haman, again, uh, is at a, a banquet with the king and, and they're the drinking and, and basically convinces the king to say, you know what, this man Mordecai uh, insulted me and, and he's Jewish. And so I think we should kill all the Jews just because of what this man Mordecai has done. And, and the king's like, all right, let's do it. And they, they roll a die and the die is, okay, in the 11th month of the year, this is what's going to happen. They will all be killed. And Hamani would say, hey, you know what? Let's, let's take care of Mordecai right now. Let's kill him right now. And he said, sure, let's go for it. Tomorrow we'll, we'll, we'll pay him on the stake that you, you set up, and, and we'll go ahead with that. So the next day, uh, actually that night, uh, Mordecai is reminded, I'm sorry, King of Persia is reminded that Mordecai is the one who saved his life. And so, again, in the snap decision, he kind of turns the whole story around and says, all right, we're not going to kill Mordecai. Uh, we're going to praise him. Haman, put him on this, this royal horse and parade him around, and people will say how awesome he is. And so, again, Haman's just getting more and more frustrated about this, but the plan is still in place to kill all the Jews in the 11th month. And so they're still in danger. Now, remember, Esther is the queen. You would think the queen has the king's ear, but not so much. At this point in history, with this nation, if you were to go to the king unrequested 
So the king didn't call for you. You just show up and say, excuse me, king, can I have a word? That was a crime punishable by death. The only way to avoid being killed would be if the king, I think there's a gesture he would do with a scepter, uh, the king would say, no, it's okay, I'll hear him. Let, let him come, let, let's have a conversation. But if he didn't do that, you would be executed, you would be killed. But again, you say, no, but this is the queen, right? Surely she can approach the king whenever she wants. No, it applied to her as well. And we actually find out from the text that it had been about a month since she had seen her husband. So it doesn't unpack that too much, but... Things probably aren't, you know, aren't all that close between the two of them, at least in this season. So Mordecai comes to Esther and he tells her this. Esther 4, verse 13 is where we're going to be. This is Mordecai's words to Esther. Because like David, Esther was in this position of great comfort. She was the queen. But there's a need in front of them. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, others who are in danger. And so Mordecai says this, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I think there's three things that Mordecai believes that he's kind of revealing by what he says to Esther. First thing he says to her is, you are still a Jew and will eventually be found out. You are still Jewish as well. So this sentence that's going to kill all the Jews applies to you as well. Even though the king may not know it now, don't think that you're going to escape it. I think part of what he's saying is, is the comfort you're experiencing right now isn't forever. I think that's a good word for us to hear as well, right? If we find ourselves in a position of more comfort or living on mission for Jesus, more comfort or sharing the hope that we have in, in Jesus? Staying the same and having more comfort or having our neighbors and coworkers and friends know that we are Christ followers? Know that we live differently because of who we follow, because who we believe to be God. He's saying, hey, this comfort you have is going to come to an end one way or another because the decree is to kill Jews and you're still Jewish. It's, the comfort's not going to last forever. When we believe God and we follow him, there's a promise of eternal comfort, though. I think that's what Mordecai's getting towards on his next point here. Hey, but God's got something better. If you do nothing, God will still do something. That's the second thing that Mordecai believes. First one, hey, you're still going to be found out sooner or later. But then he says to her, if you don't do something, God is still going to do something. God will, will not be shown up. He will rescue his people. He will protect his people. And I think part of what he's talking about here is sometimes our comfort can blind us from the things that God's doing around us. You almost wonder if he has a little bit of a wake-up mentality. We're saying to, to uh, Esther, wake up. If you don't do anything, God's still going to do something, but you have an opportunity here. You have an opportunity to do something on mission for God to be a part of the work of God in seeing the lives of many saved and rescued. That leads him to this third thing he believes. Maybe, just maybe, you have come to this place of comfort for a time such as this. Maybe this is why God's got you where he does. Maybe this is why you've experienced the opportunity and the comfort that you have is because God wanted you to be in this place at this point for this moment. 
Again, as we think of our own lives, I think there's some application here. We've talked about uh, previous weeks when we look at the comforts and opportunities that we experience. I don't think the response we should have is one of guilt or shame in any sense. But asking God, how can I use the opportunity that I have? How can I use the comforts that I have for your kingdom, for your glory, for your mission, for your purposes? And that's the opportunity before Esther. So how does Esther reply? I love this. In verse 15 of chapter 4, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. They're kind of speaking through messengers. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my, young woman, and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So what's her reply? Hey, call everyone to fast and pray for me. Okay? And I'm going to take all my people I got here. We're going to fast and pray. But did you catch the why? I think sometimes we think when we have an opportunity to... to push through discomfort, to push through pain, to do something for God that's going to be difficult, to do something for God that might cost us something. We want to go and say, hey, friends, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, can you pray for me? I need to know what to do. But that's not at all what Esther's asking for. She's already made up her mind. She said, hey, you guys pray for three days. The people who are around me, we're going to pray and fast for that same time. And then when we're done... I will go to the king. She's already made the decision. She already knows what she's going to do. She's basically saying, I'm willing to sacrifice all this to be used by God for his glory, for his mission, for his purpose. I'm willing to, to give up my own comfort for the sake of seeing someone else possibly receive some comfort when God does hopefully an amazing thing through me. She's already made the decision. That's why the prayer. I think when we make those decisions to live on mission for God, it's not easy. If, if anyone's ever called you to something for the sake of Jesus and made it sound easy, I don't think that's the, their intent. I think she's saying, pray for me because we need to depend on God. If you have an opportunity to share your faith, your trust in Jesus with a loved one, with a coworker, with, with, with someone you just bump into in life, that's not easy especially as our culture moves more and more towards a post-Christian mentality where to say that you're a Christ follower, all of a sudden people have all kinds of assumptions about what that means, about what you think, about what you believe. And sometimes you don't even get a chance, to, you feel like you don't get a chance to show them that, hey, I, I love you and care about you regardless. I love and care about others regardless because they want to pigeonhole you. And, oh, this must be who you are and what you believe. And so it's, it may be scary to say, hey, I don't want to take a stand well, here's Esther in that same moment, except her life is on the line if she takes a stand. So she's saying, pray for me. Let's pray before we do this. And then you know what? I will go before the king, and if I perish, I perish. But I would rather, I think what she's saying is, I would rather die on mission for God than live a life of comfort, blind to what he's doing around me. Blind to being a part of his plan and his will. See, her prayer wasn't one of what should I do. Her prayer was one of dependence. A friend of mine, we were in a conversation this week, and, and he, he shared this, and he said a pastor friend of his had shared it, and we, I couldn't find the source. So I, I don't know who made it up. Maybe it was even his pastor friend, but I thought it was such a true statement that prayer is the language of dependence on God. 
If you ask, why should I pray? I think especially in the positions that we live in, with the comforts that we have available to us, one of the reasons why we should pray so often to God is to remind ourselves of the dependence that we have on him. It's so easy to look at all that we have and all that we can do and say, man, I got this. I don't need anybody. I don't need anyone's help. I got it myself. And we walk that road and we say, you know what? I'm going to go and seek my own comforts and, and, and you know, take care of me, myself, and my own and, and those around me. I'm going to take care of others too, but just in the sense of comfort. But sooner or later, something comes across our life that we're like, hey, you know what? I can't handle this. And all it does is reveal where we've always been, that we've always been in this position where we depend on God, where we need God. And for those who just ache in the know how the story ends, um, Esther goes to the king, and he basically, uh, the way that the Persian law had worked, even though he was the king, he couldn't undo his own edicts. And so that edict was going to go forward as far as the ability to kill the Jews in the 11th month. So he basically wrote an edict saying they can defend themselves and go against anyone who would go against them. And God showed them victory in battle. And basically Haman and his forces and his family were wiped out and the Jews were victorious. All because someone said, hey, you know what? I want to be on God's mission. I want to, I'm willing to sacrifice some comfort for the sake of of the kingdom. Well, before the days of these kings, I was talking about you know, how David was a second king, and before those days, God spoke through prophets. And the last prophet before the kings came in, there were still prophets after, but the last one in that season was Samuel. And basically, the people of God were going to Samuel saying, hey, we want this king, we want this king, we want this king. And what's interesting is there's actually some parallels. The more I looked at that whole thing, is the people of God had a heavenly king, and yet they were crying out for an earthly one. They had something satisfied in and through God, but they wanted to find it in another way. And God finally said, fine, let's give you a king. I warned you, I said, hey, here's all the things that, that, that why this is a bad plan, but the people continued to cry out for it, and God said, fine, here's your king. In our day, I think we cry out for comfort, See, we have an eternal comfort found in God. But we say, hey, I want comfort of this world. And God's like, there's comfort in me. It's not going to take away all your issues and all the difficulty of this life, but there's eternal comfort found in me. Well, I want, I want comfort here now. I think in some ways God may say, fine, pursue that. But it's not going to satisfy. It's not going to lead you where you want. In the same way he would say to, the, to, to his people who want a king, it's not, they're not going to lead you to where you want. Because where you want to be is worshiping me, God would say. And that's what Samuel said as well. And so the people called Samuel, even though this was, things were already in place and Saul was being instated as the first king. Samuel, pray for us. And so 1 Samuel chapter 12, we get the prophet Samuel's prayer for God's people. And Samuel said to the people in verse 20, Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. So he, I mean, he's not pulling punches here. You messed up. You done messed up. It's not like, hey, you made a mistake. You have done all this evil. You've messed up, is what he's saying to the people. But don't fear. So if you've been caught up in just this pursuit of your own comfort and turned a blind eye to what God is trying to do in your life and through your life, if you've been like David and walked roads towards blatant sin, 
because of your pursuit of comfort. There may be someone like a Samuel who could say, yes, you've done this evil, but don't be afraid. Yeah, do not turn aside from following the Lord. Even though you've done these things, don't turn from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside, uh, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. He's basically, hey, continue to follow the Lord. Don't, don't turn aside and go after these empty, worthless things, but pursue the Lord. And see, I've used this illustration before, but ever since... I saw it, it just, it just, it's, so, it's so significant, I think, and so true. If you are walking away from God, if you're walking away from me, say we had an argument, you're walking away from me, and you take 20 steps away from me, and I stand in the same spot, and all of a sudden you stop and say, you know what, let's talk this out, Steve. Let's resolve this conflict. How many steps back do you need to take, or do I need to take towards you, but how many steps back would you have to take to get back to where we were? 20 steps, right? And I think that's how we look at God sometimes, but that's not true. It doesn't matter how far you may have walked away from God. Scripture calls us to repent, which literally means to turn and go the other way. And so when we repent and we say, God, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and we turn, we realize God is with us right there in that moment. And so I think that's what Samuel wants the people of God to see. You've done all this evil. You've done messed up. But God is still here. He is still good. He is a God of forgiveness and redemption. And he still has a plan for his people. So don't turn aside from following him. Don't turn aside from that and chase after things that are empty. But pursue the Lord. And then he ends in verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. So my hope for us all is that one, we would find an eternal hope, an eternal comfort, in surrendering our lives to Jesus. As we've said before, when you trust in Jesus, you know how the story's gonna end. It doesn't matter what difficulty this life would bring because you know how the story's gonna end. You know that your eternity is with God in heaven. But then when it comes to our daily life, I hope that we find daily comfort in knowing and following Jesus. That we would live a life that depends on God being God. Right? That's what that dependence means. We're saying, God, I believe you are God. God, I believe that you fulfill your promises. You sent your son, Jesus. That was a fulfillment of promise. We see other promises. I believe that you are God and you fulfill your promises. And so as we journey with him, we can take our next steps in our walk with him. We can make much of the name of Jesus and live for the good of others and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. We thank you so much for the stories of those who have come before us. Stories where, like David's, where people have chosen comfort over following you. I thank you for the hope and the reminder that there's still forgiveness, there's still restoration that you do, despite the difficulty of, of our choices when we choose sin over you, Father. And I thank you for other stories like Esther's story, where she got to experience all kinds of comfort, but when an opportunity came to live on mission for you and it meant potentially losing all the comfort she had experienced. She was willing to sacrifice it all, Father, because her dependence was on you and not herself. Her dependence was on you and not the king of Persia. Her dependence was on you, Father, and not the temporary pleasures and comforts of this world. 
That's my prayer for each one of us here this morning, Father God. As I said before, I pray that we would clearly understand what it means to have an eternal hope, our eternal comfort found in you when we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. But in our daily life capacity, Father, I pray we'd also find the comfort of knowing Jesus. No matter what difficulty may come in this life, no matter what heartache we may have to walk through, help us find such comfort and dependence on you. Help us run to you each day in prayer and let that be a reminder to us that we need you, God. We can't do life on our own. And in doing so, Father, and following you brings such significance to our daily lives as we live for the good of others and for your glory. Thank you, Father, in your name.